Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that defined their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirsty McGuire, Executive Director of PE Win. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network, also known as PE Win which is the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. PEWIN provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to our latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm your host and the founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network, Kelly Williams. I can't tell you how much I have been waiting for this day and a chance to talk to one of my dearest friends in the world, Kim Liu. Those of you who know her know that she's had an extraordinary career. She has an extraordinary life story. And we're really excited to celebrate her now that she has taken on the role of Chief Executive Officer and President of the Columbia Investment Management Company. Everyone else who knows her also knows whenever Kim's around, you're going to have a good time. So I'm thrilled that she accepted my invitation to be a guest today on Moments That Made Her. Welcome, Kim. Well, I hope we I hope we're going to have a good time. We always do have a good <laughs> we time. We always do. So I believe. We always do. What, what, what our listeners didn't hear was our debate over whether we should have a glass of wine or not. But I don't think we need it. I think we'll have a good time even without the wine. Exactly. And we'll have, we'll have wine we'll after. We'll have wine after. When you come Absolutely. back. Absolutely. Um, so I'm really excited about the conversation we're going to have today. Um, and obviously, you and I have known each other for a long time. But for our listeners who don't know you... Would you mind just spending a few minutes talking about your early life and, and how you grew up? Sure. I was born in New York City in Harlem to a African-American mother and a Chinese immigrant father. Um, I, my parents were 17 when I was born. They, my father then left when I, when I was very young and, went and served in the Vietnam War. And when he came back, my parents got married and we moved to the Bronx. And I grew up in the Bronx, attended the Bronx High School of Science, headed off to the University of Pennsylvania, and the rest is history. Yes, and I know you have wonderful relationships uh, uh, with each of your parents, very unique relationships, and, and I know we'll talk a little bit about that. But, um, and I know you grew up with a really strong work ethic, so maybe talk a little bit about what your very first job was. So, uh, it, it, well, that's an interesting question. So my very, very first job where I got a paycheck from a company was actually probably at J.P. Morgan Chase. They hired me when I was in high school to be a data entry person. So I used to come down after school and literally sitting into data. And then I became a teller at a bank, also at Chase. And after that, um, after I graduated from college, I went to work for Chemical Bank in their tre credit training program, which was an amazing experience because back then banks would actually invest in developing the talent that came into the door. So we spent the first nine months back in school learning how to be a credit analyst. I don't think that any of the banks would invest that much time before they got something out of the people that they hired. But I literally was in class for nine months. That is really impressive. Um, as our listeners know, my first job was at Dairy Queen. So I'm so impressed <laughs> that you didn't have to wear brown polyester and come home covered with uh, chocolate sauce every night like I did. <laughs> well, I will say that I did spend one summer in college working, correction, thinking I was going to work at Annie Says, which was a discount clothing store because I thought it would lead to me getting cheap clothes. I lasted one week before I realized I was not made for <laughs> um, that life. <laughs> I didn't have the patience to be um, dealing with the public. So that's very funny. That's funny. Um, well, so 
at what point did your career and, and the, the training that you were getting from, um, from the banks, at what point did that start to point you in the direction of private equity? So I knew nothing, literally nothing about private equity until I got to the Ford Foundation. I'm not even, I mean, I, I went to business school, obviously. So it's not like I didn't know that it existed, but I never thought of it as a career for me or something I would think about. And I actually went to the Ford Foundation originally following two years at Prudential doing private placements to focus on public equities. So I was doing, I was a tech analyst covering um, public equities and insurance because I'd worked at Prudential. They thought I knew something about insurance. I barely knew anything about insurance, but probably more than anybody else knew about insurance at the time. Um, and I'd spent om almost seven years doing public equities and then I moved over to do private equity. And Ford Foundation had a really um, large portfolio in the venture capital space because they had been one of the early investors in venture. So they started their venture portfolio back in 1974. And so because of that, um, it had always been a, a big part of their portfolio, not in, in the size of it, but in it, its importance. And so when the person who led that group decided to retire, she asked me to come over and do privates. And so that's when I started doing privates, which was in 2000. Well, and that's another thing you and I share because we both spent early parts of our career at Prudential and I have a great affinity for Prudential as our listeners know. Um, and that's, you know, Prudential of course had a really extraordinary private equity portfolio. They were one of the early investors in Kleiner Perkins and Axel and Mayfield and so many iconic uh, venture firms. And so I counted myself very yeah. lucky. I, I, by the time I came on board, I was monitoring those portfolios, which were you know decades old by that time. But yeah, um, but that my experience, and I'm sure yours at Prudential was really great because, as you said, it was one of the places that would actually move you around and give you different experiences. It would, and and, and similar to Chemical, it actually invested in talent. So. I was a part of a training program there as well. And the, the idea of that, the idea that people assume that you're gonna be with them for a period of time, and so they're willing to invest in training and development was a really core part of what went on back in that late 80s and early 90s in a way that I, I feel bad doesn't exist in the same way anymore. Right, I mean, I'm sure it's part of the, the history of more people spent their career at one firm. And so you could see exactly. you could see a career of 20 or 30 years at, at a company like Pru. Um, but so was there, you know, you mentioned um, that the person who had been in charge of the VC portfolio uh, retired and gave you that opportunity. Were there any other key moments that sort of led you um, to, uh, to making that decision to focus on? on VC and PE? So I, I will tell you that the reason I agreed to go and work in the private equity portfolio at the time is because I thought it was a long-term asset class and I would no longer have to be tied to the public markets and I could really be strategic about how I thought, thought about things. I was pregnant with my first child. I thought having the ability to um, not not be so tied to earning seasons and to really think strategically about investments would make it easier for me to be a mom. And in fact, that probably wasn't true because Reg FD happened right around that time. And so people who actually followed public equity started traveling less. And conversely, I was doing private equity. So I was on the road all the time. And because we were focused on venture largely, we did have a a buyout portfolio, but the bulk of the portfolio was venture and it was international. So I was in Asia a lot. I went to Europe a lot, Latin America a lot, just a lot of travel in a way that I probably wouldn't have had to do if I was actually in the public equity space. But I loved it. I love that concept of investing in um, a manager and following them and watching their development and offering some sort of even counsel to help them think about the role that they played in a portfolio. Um, I actually didn't think I was going to enjoy it because I didn't think I would like picking managers as opposed to picking stocks. I'd been a security selector before this and not a manager selector. Um, but I have come to love being a manager selector and being around such talented people. You know, people who make a decision to invest in, in privates and dedicate their life to it. Um, are unique people, right? Like the, the fact that they 
especially in venture, um, they really do commit themselves to innovation. Um, and so investing in them who, and they then invest in the entrepreneurs in our society is, is really lovely. So I've been, I've loved it. You know, I agree with you. That's one of the things I always say to people is what I, what I love about investing um, in, in private equity and, and venture capital is that you get to see the trends that are going to become part of the, you know, the economy. Um, but you get to see them at their more nascent stages. And even within private equity, you're investing usually more developed companies. But again, you get to see trends that will likely burgeon onto the uh, onto the broader economy. So, you know, you've obviously had the great good fortune to end up in senior roles at a number of organizations. I mean, you and I have known each other since you were at Ford, but um, you've you've ascended to leadership roles at a number of organizations. What would you would you point out a couple of you know key moments that that led to those opportunities and and sometimes it's not always obviously that obvious that you should take them what you know what were the kind of inflection points that made you make that decision? Yeah, I think it I think it was a couple of things. One, I think that um, I was always willing to try something that someone presented to me. I think a lot of people are so hyper-focused on where they're going, that they miss all the opportunities in, in between. I mean, I, I, I started out as a fixed income person and all of a sudden this equity position got presented to me and I said, okay, let's try it. It sounds interesting. And then when I was asked to do private equity, like I said, at first I thought, I don't wanna be a manager selector. I like being a security selector, but it was a new opportunity. And I said, yes, because I trusted that the person who was presenting it to me um, was interested in my career and wanted to make sure that I was doing lots of interesting things. My decision to leave the Ford Foundation and go to Carnegie was because someone presented me with the idea that I would learn more asset classes and I would be exposed to more information about how the markets worked uh, versus being at Ford, which was a lot more siloed in the way they approached um, allocating the capital. And so I think at each of those moments, I was enjoying my job. And so moving on to a new thing was somewhat disruptive, but the idea that it might make me grow it as an investor was always attractive. So I said, yes, and they always happened literally at the worst time in my life, right? Like personally. And I just made a decision that there's never a good time. I moved from public equities, private equities, one month before my first daughter was born. I left the, um, I left, the Ford Foundation to go to Carnegie with a two month old baby. Um, And, you know, I became a CIO at a time when my kids were very young, right? I had little kids, I had a four year old at the time. Um, And then I came and joined Columbia, as you know, just months after my husband passed. And I think that it always feels like now is not the right time But the markets don't wait for the right time for you or opportunities don't wait for the right time in your life. And you have to decide whether or not the disruption it creates in your life is worth it. And it hasn't always been worth it, but when it has been worth it, it's been really worth it. And I've made really good decisions. We would like to take a brief break to thank PEWIN's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at PEWIN.org. Now back to today's guest. Columbia. I took Columbia after my husband passed. I, basically, every time there was a problem I t- right. <laughs> in my life, personal life, I, I took new opportunities. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting your comment about, um, you know, you were on a path and the path was going well and then you made the change. I always talk about the fact that from the time I was a little girl, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. And I remember the first opportunity I had uh, to move to the business side, I looked at the person I said wait you know I'm a lawyer that's just, I trained for it I spent all this money on my education and my aha moment was him saying aren't aren't you try, tired of keeping I won't use the expletive 
let's say idiots out of trouble and i was like you know i really am um but that you know to do anything like that obviously takes some willingness um to take risk as private equity investors we actually get paid to take risk but a lot of women don't take risk in their careers and so what what gave you the courage and confidence to take risk you know i i think it's a couple of things i think i grew up in a family that required you to to take chance and and do your best you know i had a a father who um immigrated to the united states as a six-year-old boy right like coming to a new country not knowing the language a lot of risk in that. I have a aunt who um, joined, came to the United States as well, and looked for her brother and found him, um, a very tiny Chinese woman who went to the uh, housing projects in the Bronx looking for her brother. If if something is important, you do it, right? Like, I, I just think I've grown up in a family um, that if there is a chance for good things to happen for you, you take the chance, right? Like. My parents have a very unique story. You know, most people would not imagine that they would be able to survive being married. They've been married more than 50 years. They've been together almost, you know, 60 years and they're still together because you sort of invest in things that are important to you and you keep at it. And I think that um, I've always had that frame of mind. And, and I, you know, I make the joke all the time, you can't fall off the floor, right? So there's a little bit <laughs> of, you know, like you started at a place it's never going to be worse than that. So just take a chance mm-hmm. right? like, and hope that you can make the situation better. I think that there's a lot of people who feel they have something to lose. And when you feel like you have something to lose, you don't take the same chances as when you feel like I can only win. And there was a little bit of always feeling like I can only win in this, right? Like there's so much of this that I can control and the things I can't control, I'll just be able to I'll just go back to what I was doing it I I felt like I never burnt a bridge that kept me from going back if this didn't work out so I didn't so maybe I didn't see the risk in the same way but it's always worked out it's always and I've only gone when I thought this could really make me better as an investor this could really make me better as a person there's been a lot of times that different opportunities got presented to me they just weren't more exciting than the thing I was doing so when it was more exciting you do it and you work as hard as you can to be successful at it, and it works. And if it doesn't work out, you go back to the thing you used to do right. that you loved. And I've always thought of it that way. Yeah. No, that's a really good way to put it. I think, um, you know, it's something that makes that's more exciting or even makes you feel a little scared. Um, you know, that's that's maybe the direction to go in. But I think for me, it's always I just trust the universe. I, I always think, okay, this is being um, presented to you. So, you know, if it feels good, if it feels natural follow it. If it starts to get a lot of roadblocks and problems, it's probably the universe telling you not to do it. But at least it challenged you to think about what else could I be doing. Um, so what would what would you point out as the high point of your career thus far? I mean, you, you're still very young and you still have a lot of career ahead of you. But um, and I say that because we're almost the same age. So of course, we're both very young. But um, Exactly. What uh, is there something that stands out that that you're particularly proud of or that made you feel that you had made quote unquote made it? You know, I don't know that I've I've yet felt like I've made it right. Like, I, I think that that as a person, there's always another ring. And so I want to always feel like there's another great thing to do. There's lots of moments when I've been incredibly proud, incredibly proud. I've been, I'm so proud of the time I spent at Carnegie Corporation. I'm especially so proud of the period of time when I was co-CIO with Meredith Jenkins because no one, including me, thought we could do that together. I remember you calling me when you first got offered that role, yeah. It was, I, I couldn't believe that they would do something so crazy and to look back on what a great experience that was for me. We just sort of decided we were gonna make the best of it and we did great things together. And I think um, I learned so much from that partnership. I learned so I learned a lot from the partnership and I learned a lot from the idea of not everything you think is bad is bad. You can make lemonade out of lemons, right? Like, and so, so trusting that, right? Like trusting yourself to be like, okay, so I've gotten this situation. It's not what I necessarily would have liked, 
but it is what I have. And how do you make the best of this? And I think that was an incredible lesson for me to learn. And so at each point along the way, when there's been disappointments, it's been really about, okay, so how do you, how do you recraft this so that it feels better, so that it is better, so that you can do good things with this position that you're in and this situation that you're in? And I think that um, that's been wonderful. And it's been even more wonderful to teach that lesson to my children, right? Like I have two daughters and I'm always trying to um, encourage them to do things that are difficult and challenging. And I, um, we, I converted my oldest daughter's bedroom into a gym when she left for college. <laughs> and there's a, there's a little uh, model that I put on the wall and it says, if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you, right? And so I'm always telling them, I say all the time, you get comfortable with being uncomfortable because it's only when you're uncomfortable that you're better. And so when I got offered the job at Columbia, my daughter said to me, mom, we do hard things. And it was, I mean, like mm-hmm. to hear that parroted back to me was wonderful. And I do think there is growth in doing hard things. And so anytime I've done something that beforehand, I thought this is a terrible thing and it works out and you overcome it, it's so strengthening, right? Like it fortifies you to take on the next big challenge. And so I'd look at that moment and think, oh my God, we thought that was the worst thing and it turned out to be the best thing, which made it so possible for us to do tremendous things with the next point in our career and made it possible for us to feel confident moving into the next part of our career. So when the Columbia opportunity came along, there was a lot about it that I thought that I wouldn't like, but I never thought I couldn't do it. And so, you know, here we are, and I'm in a very different place than I was before. I'm enjoying it mostly because I'm growing so much. Um, I never go into an opportunity thinking, I'm just gonna recreate what existed before. Nope, you gotta, each time you move into a new opportunity, you should assess it and figure out how your skills aligns with what is there and create greatness in a new place. And so it's been nice to sit back and think, you know, how do you create the perfect portfolio for Columbia, which is not the same as the perfect portfolio for Carnegie? And how do you motivate this team that has different resources than you motivated the last team? And I think that um, one thing I like about it is there's a chance that Carnegie was luck. But if I do it again, then it's skill, right? right? And, and so it is in the process that you learn if you have skill or not, right? It's not in, always in the outcomes, but, but for sure, if you are really thoughtful about the process you're going through, you're gonna come out with something great. And so I am in the process of really understanding Columbia as an institution and the role that the endowment plays in how the organization works and the talent that exists in the office and how best to utilize that talent and how best to make them um, great. And so that, and all of us keep focused on the mission and, and operate in service to the university in a really meaningful way. So it's been lovely, right? Like I have had the great pleasure of being at two incredible mission-based organizations and then joining Columbia, which is so focused on solving so many huge world problems, um, including climate. And it's, it's kind of exciting to be here, right? And it's also exciting to be back at school. I forget how much fun it is to be at an educational institution where there's so many young people and there's, you know, there's just, just a lot of excitement around being at a place like a university. So, so far, so good. Great. Well, I'm, I'm very excited for you. I would agree. I think Columbia is an extraordinary place. And, um, you know, having sat on the board of my college, I remember every time I went back there, I was like, I'd love to come back now. <laughs> I wish I could go back to school now. Um, exactly. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is uh, something you and I've talked about a bunch, which is, you know, many of the women in our industry, if you've gotten to a senior level in private equity, it's very often the case that you are, you know, the primary breadwinner in your household, not that you're the sole breadwinner, but you're likely making more money than, than your spouse. Um, and so, you know, in the workplace, it's very hard to be vulnerable, right? You, you have to be almost like a monolith. You have to be indestructible. 
um, because your family is relying on you for their uh, their lifestyle. And when you're going through challenges, as you said, you know, your your husband passed away. Um, uh, in my case, you know, my, my husband has, you know, had, had early on struggled with alcoholism. He's in recovery. He's a counselor now. But it's very hard to share those things because you have to look like you're, you know, you've always got it all together. Uh, and, you know, many women in our industry are dealing with some type of challenge with the layered challenge of the fact that their family's well-being is lying on, you know, resting on their shoulders. How do you, how do you grapple with it? How, what's, what's a lesson that, yeah. that you learned going through that? So I, I could not agree more with the whole concept that there's so many of us that are carrying such heavy loads and that we aren't always patient with each other because we don't know what's going on in each other's personal lives. I am a far more transparent than many people. And I think it's because I want people to know that sometimes I'm not at my best moment. I, sometimes I'm not who I aspire to be. And that everybody should be patient with each other in a real way. But people don't know what you're going through unless you let them know what you're going through, right? So I tend to be a little bit more transparent. And I learned this lesson sort of late in life. Um, I wish I had learned it earlier. I went through that period of time where I was trying to be very stoic, where I was trying to be just like the guys, right? Like, you know, people used to say, don't talk about your kids. Don't put pictures of your family up. Never miss a meeting. Don't, don't ever let them know that you have other responsibilities outside of your home. But the reality is, I did. And the reality is, I could not be a better white guy than the white guys were. <laughs> so I had to be who I was, which was a mother, a primary breadwinner, a, a, a black Chinese woman doing this job. And that was valuable, right? Like I had to stop thinking of it as not valuable. I could add to this conversation because I was coming with all of that color, right? And all that fullness of my life. And so just like I had to be tolerant of other people, right? Because we've experienced a lot of people who do things that are shockingly inappropriate, mm -hmm. right? And we had to learn how to not um, let that be all that they were. Well, now you have to learn how to not, to also accommodate all that I am, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I sort of, and I, and it, that was empowering once I got there, right? Like, I don't think it's easy to get to that place. I think you have to have a lot of wins on the board before you can feel that confident. Um, but you got to get there because I don't think that you can ever completely be successful until you're comfortable in your skin. So once I got comfortable, like, this is just who I am, right? Like, I don't always speak the King's English, right? Like, I love rap music. <laughs> I like curse way more than I would ever let my parents know mm -hmm. that I do. But that's who I am. And it's exhausting to be something else. And so I'm gonna stop pretending, right? Like, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna waste energy on that. And instead, I'm gonna focus industry on energy on learning new things and um, being a better manager and being a better me and not waste energy on that stuff anymore. And I think I got better once that happened. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah, I talk about, I tell people, you know what? My husband passed away. I'm probably not going to be my best, which means don't call me. It's not, it's not you. It's me. I just need to, I need to sort of grapple with that for a moment. I need to, to do that. I need to focus on work. I need to focus on my girls and I'll get back to you. And yeah, now it's a year later. I can get back to everybody, mm -hmm. right? But I had to take that moment. People had to know I was taking that moment because it wasn't about them or me not being dedicated to this industry. It was about everything else that was going on. And then people gave me space for that. And so I think a lot of people don't feel like they can do that. And, you know, I'm sure it has hurt me at times because, you know, not everybody's fully evolved. But it's it's less painful, right? It's it's less exhausting. So I'm glad I got here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what I've found is in the times when I'm brave enough to be authentic, it's not just women, but it's also men who kind of take a sigh of relief. 
And I can't tell you how many men would come up to me, you know, and, and kind of unburden themselves about something. And I, I actually think ultimately that makes it better for everybody. Um, if men can stop pretending and women can stop pretending and we can all just kind of um, appreciate each other and the, and the flaws and the, the uh, inadequacies that we all have, it, it just makes it easier. Absolutely. Makes it easier on each other. Absolutely. Um, well, so now maybe turning from something a little less heavy, um, is there a time in your career or in one of your one of your roles where you felt particularly creative, where you said, wow, like I really got to um, exercise this part of my uh, my brain and my my personality um, that that made you feel like I really created something? Yeah, I think um, the moment that felt um, I felt the most innovative was when we designed the organizational structure at Carnegie, right? Like we had to, uh, we had to build a structure that allowed for um, a lot more debate amongst the team and allowed us to to insert ourselves in ways that were appropriate for our skill level, um, but not create a, a structure that was so bespoke to the individuals that it couldn't translate when it's with something else. And I was an organizational behavior major. I was accounting and organizational behavior um, major in college and had never really used organizational behavior. And so I'd like to step back and think, okay, so like what behaviors am I trying to create in this organization? And what would make us better investors? And to sit around and like recraft something felt very creative. Um, and I love that. I love that it wasn't just the numbers. It was around the process of creating good investments. And um, I think we were better for it. I think when we're talking about um, investing, I think my the most creative moments is when we did early funds, you know, first time funds, second time funds. Um, it, it's easy to pick the people who are already on the path to success. It's much, much more fun when you're picking the newer manager who actually needs coaching, who hasn't really thought about the right way to um, structure their organization. The terms don't match who they are. They're, they're not being strategic about how they pick capital. So, so those are particularly um, great moments in my career. And I think probably one of the best moments is when we were at Carnegie, um, in partnership with Elisa Mall, one of the people on our team, we developed this program for sourcing diverse managers, right? And emerging managers where we would do these speed dating sessions, right? Like we would invite members of the foundation and endowment community to come to the Carnegie Corporation and we would bring 10 managers in who were emerging managers and diverse. And they would make 15 minute pitches all day long, right? Like to we did over two hours, so they would meet with eight groups of LPs. So probably 16 or 20 LPs in a two hour period of time. They had to hone their pitch and be really crisp about it. They only had 15 minutes. And if they were good enough, somebody would invite them to come and actually do a real presentation in their office. And not all of these managers were appropriate for us, but they were often appropriate for somebody else. And we would try and make sure that we picked the people we know were looking for the type of managers they were. They weren't specifically venture. Sometimes they were venture. Sometimes they were buyouts. They were growth capital. They were real estate managers. It was all across the private structures. And we would invite people. And sometimes they were hedge funds, but it was mostly private. And, you know, that idea of if you say that the problem is access and sourcing, okay, let's try to solve those problems, mm -hmm. right? Like try to identify all the different things that are impediments to the problem and to solving that problem and try to do a little thing to fix it. They're always the best, right? And so, and when, um, you know, we started out, they were 10 minutes. No, we need to make it a little longer. Okay, we need to, we need to invite different types of people. Okay, we need to have a we have more diversity in the type of managers that are there at any one moment so that they don't feel competitive against each other, but they could actually feel comfortable taking their pitch. Like we iterated on that process over and over again to get to a place that we felt really good about it. And so I think um, those moments when you, you identify 
something that is wrong in how we are doing things as allocators and trying to find a way to solve it, always wonderful. I agree. Um, well, that's, that, it's great that you identified it as moments, since this is moments that made her. Um, I remember so many of those uh, f- first-time managers, you know, you and I sharing notes on them and, and um, basically referring them back and forth, saying, hey, I met with these guys, you should take a look, or these women are incredible, you should really take a meeting. Um, and obviously, a lot of that learning from both of us went into Project Pinklight, which is one of the signature programs for PE Win. It's exactly what you said, which is, oh, if people say, well, we can't find any women managers, well, let us help you do that. <laughs> we know some great ones, and we're going to help set them up for success uh, by, you know, giving them an opportunity to, to try things out on us and giving them some feedback. Absolutely. I, I think that people so often... Um, get lost in the presentation, right? Like just because someone isn't a good presenter doesn't mean they're not a good investor, right? So let's just try to get over that hurdle and and give people some skills so they know how to present to the allocator community. And that's that has nothing to do with whether they're good investors or not. But so often we ignore those people because we think that translates into them not being a good investor. So I love finding those people who are who don't have a skill that I could help them with and send them out into the world to be, you know, great at the thing that they are great at. I so. agree. Well, and keeping on that theme, so um, all of us know that this, no matter how much success you have, all of us have had a failure or, or a trip or a misstep um, or you know, to use a euphemism, a teachable moment. Is there one that uh, particularly stands out for you? And, you know, how, how did that provide you that, that teachable moment, that yeah. kind of transformational moment? I don't think that there has been um, a job that I've had that didn't have a teachable <laughs> moment, right? Like they happen all the time. Sometimes they are big, and sometimes they are small. I think back to the time when I was at Prudential and I just wasn't sufficiently um, good at controlling my emotions. So let's just say that, right? <laughs> and I kind of struck out at somebody who was really senior to me. And I, and soon as it happened, I thought back on, oh my God, I could get fired for this, right? Like you just have to learn to be better. This is not, and it's a little bit of like, this is not, the housing projects in the Bronx, you're in a different environment. You need to relearn lessons. You need to learn how to communicate differently. You need to approach people differently. And you know, it could have been, I could have gotten fired. I mean, it was literally, I was inappropriate with um, someone and everybody was kind of like, okay. And other people sort of took me under their wing and was like, okay, so like, you need to learn how to say things differently. Your point maybe wasn't wrong, but the way you said it was wrong. And I think I had invested enough that people wanted me to be better. And so they, they stopped me, right? Um, I think that there have been times, especially when I was at the Ford Foundation, where I made a lot of investments that were arguably footfalls. I remember um, we got to China really early, right? You know, I felt, you know, I'm half Chinese. I thought <laughs> investing in China sounds like a lot of fun. Well investing in China in um, the early, the late nineties and early two thousands was not so fun, right? Like there was a lot of bad investments to be made. And um, I think that the problem there was assuming that um, the way you thought about the world and the way you thought about investing in the United States was translatable in every other place that you went to lesson learned, right? Like, no, you can't, you have to, you have to know the nuances of every market you go into and adjust accordingly. It was a good lesson to learn. I think when I got to Carnegie, I had moments when um, my relationship with the board was a little bit challenging and learning how to negotiate that and how to convey information in a way that people could hear it and understand it. Um, That was a lesson that I had to learn. And, you know, I had to not do it well before I did it well. And I think ultimately I did it really well and built an amazing relationship as the board evolved. Um, So I learned that there. 
I think Colombia is a much bigger place with a lot more bureaucracy, a lot more rules, a lot more constituencies, um, a bigger staff with different and bigger motivations. I am learning that I have to adjust to the needs of each individual and to this place um, in a powerful way, <laughs> I have to say, but I'm enjoying it because I feel like I have the tools to figure it out, but I don't feel like I walked in knowing. And so the growth that comes from having the tools, but not really knowing how to use them yet and figuring out how to use them has been really great. Um, you know, I feel like so, I feel like we're in the business of taking risk. And so of course I have investments that have not gone right, but I never feel like those are bad. I feel like, you know, sometimes they go badly because I didn't necessarily do all the work I should have done to make sure they, they've gone well, or I didn't ask, always ask the right questions, but oftentimes I did. And there was a risk I identified and it came true. And, you know, I'm not proud that it didn't work out, but that's what we do. So you have to, you can't look at any one investment and be sad about it. You have to look at your body of work and does the body of work feel like you did the right thing? And I sort of feel like, yeah, it did, right? Like overall, I make more, I have more wins than losses. And so that's fine, right? Like, cause you don't get them all right. And, and if you get them all right, you're not taking enough risk. So, you know, it, if I can stay focused on the big picture, then I'll be fine which is different than when I was actually, you know, an analyst. I couldn't focus on the big picture. I had to focus on the details and get those right. But now I just have to focus on the big picture. And I think a lot of um, CIOs or senior people, CEOs, fail because they don't realize that. Like, I don't, that's not, my job is not to get the details right. My job is to get the strategy right. And so if the process is right, if the structure is right, if we're making good decisions, we can recover from mistakes. And so, um, so you know, yeah, I've had a lot of investments that didn't go well, but that's okay. They're good. They 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 make me a better investor. Yeah, we all have. I mean, what I what I find as you transition from being the you know the more junior person who's in charge of the details, and your mastery of the details is what makes your boss look good, right? When you become the boss. One of the one of the most important things is that you create an environment where the people who report to you will come and tell you when they've made a mistake and you have to model that for them. You have to take responsibility for your own mistakes and often you take responsibility for the mistakes made by your your team. But but if your team's not coming and telling you, that's when you're in danger because something big could blow up and before it's and when it's too late for you to fix it. Exactly. I completely agree. And it, and it's, I mean, I have to say the bulk of the lessons that I have learned have come from my kids, right? Like, cause it's that same thing. I want my kids to tell me when something has gone wrong, cause I need to fix that problem or teach them how to fix that problem. But that's, that's developed with trust, right? And we're both invested in success, right? Like we need this family to succeed. We have to trust each other. We have to get there. And that translated into how I think about my team. We are a family here or a team at least. We have to trust each other because we have to have a common goal, right? Like and we have to get there. And so I absolutely have to take responsibility when things go wrong in an organization that I lead. And my team has to know that I am going to do that, right? Like, and if somebody is not a good fit, I've got to tell them you're not a good fit and like not drag people along either, right? Like. It, it's all about fairness. It's about creating a fair and equitable as organization, at least as fair and equitable as you can make it. I don't think anything is completely fair and equitable, but it, but striving for that at every moment. And so I, you know, it's that is one of the things I'm working on at Columbia, right? Like it wasn't something that was as loud at Carnegie because I grew up with the people at Carnegie and now I'm totally new at Columbia. So, and trying to build trust over zoom yeah right we came we went back into the office two weeks ago there were people in the organization i hadn't met in person until two weeks ago and i'd been there 10 months it's really hard to build trust so i'm i'm sympathetic to people who are trying to pitch deals in this environment over zoom when it's really hard to build trust right 
Um, there's so much back conversation that's happening, right? Um, I remember when I was at Carnegie, we had a coach come in to help us with, with making sure that we were the type of team that we wanted to be. And one of the things she said was, you have to stop the back conversations and everybody has to have conversations with each other. Well, guess what? During this period of, of the pandemic, it's nothing but back conversations, right? Not even on purpose. It's just that no one's together. So everybody's having these little side conversations with people on the team. And it's always translating, not exactly the way you intended it. And you spend a lot more time sort of correcting. Um, I can't wait to get back in the office. Like, <laughs> I've been in the office till like three or four days a week for the last couple of weeks. It feels so much better, which doesn't mean that I don't also love having moments when I'm in my house. I focus better when I'm in my house, but my job is not always to focus. Sometimes my job is to just, you know, build culture and, and uh, be a part of a team. So I do that better in the office. And so it's nice to be back. Yeah. I know all my friends in uh, commercial real estate in New York appreciate that you want to come back. They want, they want everybody to come back. Um, well, Obviously, we could talk for hours, and we will. We will. We will go get that drink. Um, this is That's right. this has been an incredible conversation, as we do with all of our PE Win um, moments that made her podcast. I've got a couple of lightning round questions to ask you. Um, so, first of all, what have you been binge watching during the pandemic? Oh, oh my God! I you know I I think people know this. I am. Um, kind of addicted to television you know people say what you know what do you do when you're wasting time and they come up with all these creative i paint i like i i play the piano i watch tv good and bad um i really love television so i i would guess that i've watched everything that other people have watched right like <laughs> when the bridgerton phase was going on i watched that i watched lucifer i watched the crown so i i'm highbrow and lowbrow i'm indiscriminate right like it's if something will capture my attention i will watch it I have a 14-year-old and a 21-year-old, which means that my range of TV is pretty wide, right? Like I, I watch Pen15 or uh, Never Have I Ever with my 14-year-old. I have re-watched Sex in the City with my 21-year-old, <laughs> which has been fun to do. Um, so I, I watch a lot of TV. Yeah. That wasn't a quick answer. No, 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 that's good. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, my latest, I just watched Hacks, which I highly recommend. It's phenomenal with Gene oh, Smart. Yeah. So good. Okay. So good. So what's your cell phone wallpaper? My, a picture of my girls. Yeah. And the, well, the one that's, um, my lock screen is a picture of my girls. The one that's, um, that's in the, sort of in the background is a, a picture of me and my parents when I was a baby. Ah, oh, I love that. That's great. You have to show me that yeah. next time. Um, so if you weren't in private equity or you weren't investing, what career would you have? This is going to sound crazy, but when people ask me that question, I always say I would be a therapist. I can see that. I, I love hearing. Yeah, totally. I love hearing people's stories. Right. And I think that um, because I really like to know people and understand who they are, it's made me better at my job. Right. So I think I've been a therapist. Good. So are you a dog or a cat person? such a hard question so um this is going to sound terrible but i'm always the person that says i'm not going to take care of anything that won't eventually take care of me <laughs> so i don't let my kids have oh pets. i was gonna say because you don't I, I i was pretty sure you don't have pets right i have no pets but i like cats and dogs i'm not like a person who like when i go to somebody else's house and they have an animal that i'm like oh my god get that animal away from me no i like to play with someone's dog and if you have a cat that doesn't mind being around i don't you know, I like animals. I just, in the world of trying to not put too much on my plate, animals were the first to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm not a cat or a dog person. You're so <laughs> funny. That's hysterical. Um, so I guess, I'm, I think I, we've hit all of them. Maybe, oh, what's the best piece of advice you've been given? I think, I mean, I think there are a lot of, advice. So my best in investing advice is to take risk. Someone said to me, you're never going to be good at, at investing if you don't take risk. So learn how to get over yourself and take risk. Um, I think um, my parents always told me that um, 
it's all about preparation. It's always it's always about being prepared. And I try really hard to be prepared. I feel like it's respectful of the other person. So um, I think preparation was always good advice. And I think, you know, like I, like I said, I try to tell my daughters to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think that's good advice. And I think, um, I, I hope that I'm kind, you know, like my, 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 my grandmother used to always be like, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not hard to be nice to people, but she always also was like, but if somebody is not nice to you back, then you know, like, don't be a pushover, right. like, don't be kind of a, a sucker in it. So I think I'm always trying to buy, find that balance and sort of controlling the fast temper and being kind and um, I hope I'm I hope I'm getting it right. We'll see. You are. You <laughs> absolutely are. Well, Kim, thank you for this extraordinary interview. It's always fun to be together. I can't wait till we're physically together. But um, oh my God, on behalf of all of your friends and colleagues at PE Win, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PE Win Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PE Win expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by P.E. Wynn and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Wynn's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.